Esther, the book of Esther. Tonight we come to chapter 2, the book of Esther, chapter 2, a royal beauty pageant. Just doesn't quite make sense, that title, but there it is, the best I could do. So Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Now after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, had abated, he remembered Vashti, and what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, uh, Kin, sorry, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother, so his cousin. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king against, again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch who had charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. 
When Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants, it was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces, and he gave gifts with royal generosity. And we'll end there, and may God bless the reading of his word. John Flavel, the Puritan, has said that the word of God and the providences of God all go in the same way, but they may take different paths at different times. And so sometimes you find in the providence of God that things are not quite what you expected, wanted, or believed were possible, and yet in the end they all come and meet as the purpose of God, the purpose that God intended. Scripture portrays that God is in control of all things, that he's in control of a pagan king and a young Jewess who lived 2,500 years ago. That he's in absolute control. Even though the book of Esther never once mentions the name of God, never says a word about God, never gives us any indication of any uh, comprehension, really, of any Jewish worship system, desire to return to Jerusalem, desire to go back to the temple uh, and see it being rebuilt under Zerubbabel and others and see what had happened. No, Mordecai and Esther live in Persia. That's where they've made their life, and that's where we find them when we come to Esther chapter 2. Things have changed in Persia since Vashti was deposed. Things are different. In fact, in verse 1, verse 1 points out to us that Ahasuerus, after a cooling-off period, he remembered two things. Number one, he remembered what Vashti had done. And number two, he remembered what had been decreed against her, or in light of what she had done. So those two things came back to his mind after a period of time, when he thought about things. He remembered what Vashti had done, and he remembered that a decree had gone out uh, about her de being deposed. And this subsiding, because he was furious, this subsiding of the anger of Ahasuerus, or the anger of King Xerxes, was not an immediate thing. Because if you look at verse 16 of chapter 2, verse 16 says that Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in the tenth month, month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So Esther only came in the seventh year of the reign of Xerxes. And Queen Vashti, according to chapter 1 and verse 3, was removed from her position of power in the third year of the reign of Xerxes. So we have a period of four years between when Vashti was removed and Esther goes in to King Xerxes. And according to chapter 2 and verse 12, the beauty treatments that these young women underwent lasted for a whole year. So somewhere in between the four-year period between Vashti and Esther, Esther has been, along with all the other women in all the 127 provinces, has been chosen and has been taken to Susa and has been, is in this process 
of this 12-month beauty treatments for one year. So she has been, according to verse 16 then, and as a result of verse 12, she's been in the seventh year under a 12-month regimen of beauty treatments. Now I think it's helpful for us to remind ourselves historically of the ancient world, especially this time frame. Every time you read about the month and the year in the Bible, you should stop and try to understand, well, what time is that? What year is that? And what happened in the world in that year? And that's exactly what we find here in these chapters. So in chapter 1, verse 3, in the third year when Vashti was deposed, that was the third year of Ahasuerus's reign. And that was the year 483 because we know that Xerxes or Ahasuerus came to power in 480 BC. And so uh, here we find, sorry, 486 BC. Now three years later is 483 BC. And in chapter 2, verse 16, the seventh year would make from 486, it would make it to be 479. So Xerxes whom we know from history, began his rule in 486 and it lasted for 21 years and ended in 465 BC. There's also some evidence that King Xerxes was a co-regent with his fierce father Darius I uh, uh, for about 12 years. There's some evidence that seems to indicate that. So from 498 to 486 he has had experience in royal governance and in the affairs of a kingdom. This time frame, of course, was not a peaceful time for the kingdom of Persia. Things are in turmoil. Persia is at war, at war with ancient enemies, particularly the enemy of Darius I, the father of Ahasuerus, which was Greece. And Xerxes, Ahasuerus, finds himself in the same predicament at war with Greece. And there are revolts, for instance, in Ionia, which is the western part of Asia Minor. We read our New Testaments. The seven churches are in the western part of Asia Minor, which was the ancient kingdom 500 years previously before John wrote Revelation, was the western part of Asia Minor, this place called Ionia. And so from 499 to 494, there have been these ongoing revolts in the kingdom of Darius I and subsequently into the kingdom of King Ahasuerus. There is, of course, the great battle of Marathon, from which, of course, we get the marathon that runners run today in 490 BC. And if Xerxes was a co-regent, then it's quite possible he was there at the battle of Marathon in 490. In 480 BC, when he definitely is king, one year before Esther goes into the king, in 480 BC, the Persian navy suffered a great defeat against Greece at the Battle of Salamis, September 480 BC, three years after Vashti was deposed. And then another defeat in the year of 479, the very year that Esther is called in to go to Ahasuerus at a place called Plataea in Greece, because the Greek city-states of Sparta and Athens in their uh, coalitions had arrayed themselves against the Persians and had defeated the Persians. So it would appear that Esther has begun her 12-month preparation period during this period of Persian defeat from 480 to 479. 
So Xerxes, Ahaz Uerus, is a lot of stuff going on in his mind. He's the, the matter of the kingdom, holding it together, waging this massive campaign against Greece, which was a mighty ancient enemy. So there's a lot to think about. You remember back in chapter 1, the first nine verses were really, when he gave that, that six-month feast of 180 days, that was his preparation for his campaign into Greece where he suffers these defeats later on. So he has been making preparation for war against Greece. You remember in chapter 1, he took counsel with his officers, with the nobles, with the army, with the governors. He gathered them all in from 127 provinces, from India to Ethiopia. He brought them in and he took counsel with them because that was the Persian way of governing. So that they would be on his side. He promises them reward. He promises them riches. He promises that he will give them whatever they, they desire if they will... Support him in this great war that he has planned against Greece. So Xerxes finds himself as someone who has been defeated. Someone who has suffered loss. Vashti's gone, 483 BC. Greece, in the meantime, has defeated him on a number of occasions. There was only one bright spot, spot in the campaign, in the Grecian campaign, and that was the defeat by by Xerxes or Ahasuerus of Leonidas the Spartan who held, remember, the Persian army at bay for quite a long period of time with just a handful of men, perhaps 300 men we are told and there he, he, holding the army, delayed the army so that ultimately the Persians would be defeated though the Persians defeated Leonidas the Spartan at that time in 480 BC at the Battle of Thermopylae now, these are historical records. The Bible doesn't tell us these things, but these are historical records. You can find them out and know them from, from history. So, Ahasuerus has suffered these things, and so you find chapter 2, verse 1 says, After these things. After these things. After these things, when the anger of Ahasuerus has abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. And so the anger of Ahasuerus is simmering under the surface, and has been for a long time. Ever since Vashti, it would appear from chapter 1, certainly from the book of Esther, that when Vashti refused to come into his presence, and was deposed, from that time on, his anger has been simmering under the surface, and he's been a man at war, and he suffered great losses, and it would appear now he's come home. And at home he remembers what Vashti did to him. And he remembers what was decreed in chapter 1 against her. Now I can imagine Vash, um, Xerxes or Ahasuerus being very angry at losing to the Greeks. What king likes to lose a war? A series of battles to the same enemy over and over again. So he would be very angry at losing, let alone, it appears from the text, angry at what Vashti had done to him. And so the wars then, we find, are the historical in-between time frame between Vashti's deposal and Esther becoming queen. So in between those 483 and 479, you find Xerxes at war. But now he's come home to Susa the citadel, which is the capital of Persia, and he's home and he remembers 
what Vashti did to him and the decree that was made. So verse 1 is a follow-up on what has to be done. Now, the Greek historian Herodotus tells us that the lifestyle of Xerxes following his, de his defeats was one of sensual overindulgence. So this is a man now who's come home. He gives himself to pleasure. And certainly, chapter 2 indicates that kind of lifestyle. Woman after woman after woman after woman. The usual practice, of course, for choosing a wife for a king was to choose a woman from a royal family or a noble family. Perhaps that's why you remember in chapter 1, the seven counselors or princes uh, who took counsel with Xerxes, one of them, Memucan, he, made, uh, he, gave a, uh, he told the king what should be done to Vashti, what should be decreed against her. And so on. And perhaps he was positioning himself in chapter 1 by making those suggestions that his daughter or family member might be chosen from one of the royal families into the uh, line, the royal line, marry Xerxes. And so perhaps he had said that in chapter 1 to, to put his own family in the line of the king. So this suggestion, you will notice in chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, the king's young men who stand around him, right? It reminds you of the, the young men with King Rehoboam after King Solomon had died. When Rehoboam was taking counsel, he asked the elders of the people, well, how should I govern the people of Israel? And they told him, well, you should lessen, lessen the, the, the oppression or the, the strict rule of Solomon. But he didn't do that. In fact, the young men said, no, you should up the pressure. And so he listened to the young men, and of course that divided the kingdom. And the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split as a result of that. This reminds me of that kind of thing. These young men are standing around who probably have no experience really in life and who give counsel, who attended him, it says, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces. 120 provinces, right? Let the king appoint officers in all those provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Now that, of course, is a process of time, isn't it? To go out to 127 provinces, gather all these women, and bring them to Susa is going to take some time. So this is their advice. Beautiful young virgins, seek for them throughout the kingdom, bring them to the harem in Susa, and put them under the charge of this man, Haggai, who's called the king's eunuch, who apparently had charge of the women, the text says, or is the one in charge of the harem. It's clear in the passage that there are two harems. There is the first under Haggai, and there is the second under Shaashgaz. They are classified differently. Under the first, they are virgin. Haggai, but under the second they are concubines because of the night spent with the king. So Haggai, this man, this king's eunuch, and I talked a little bit about the king's eunuch previously, was in charge of the women. And some have suggested that to become a royal woman in Persia required seven stages of preparation or development. And these are the seven stages. The first stage is the collection of young women, verse 3. So there's no regard for families. There's no regard for what a father might think of his daughter being taken. 
They are just removed forcibly, a forced extraction in 127 provinces, just taken from their homes and gathered together. So the collection takes place. You can see that in verse 3, right? Let the king appoint officers to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa under the custody of Hegai. The, the collection. Secondly, the gathering. They're all brought to one place, verse 3, to the capital, to Susa, to the harem, under God. And then thirdly, the assigning. Notice they are assigned to this eunuch, Hegai. And in verse 8, it says that when, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, all Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai. So all these women are under the charge of just this one man, Hegai, who has a lot of power and a lot of control. And they are assigned to this man, to Hegai, who's in charge of the harem. Number four is the treatment. The treatment. One year of cosmetics applied. Cosmetic application. Right? Verse 3, let their cosmetics be given to them. Frankly, I have no idea what that entails. Okay, one year of preparation. The Hebrew word that is used here, the word tamruk, is the word for a scraping, for a rubbing. So I don't know what all that entails, but certainly it's part of the beauty treatment. Notice in verse 12, it says in verse 12, when the turn came for each young woman to go into Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women. So notice their treatments twofold, right? Six months just oil of myrrh, and six months spices and ointments for women. Must have been incredible skin, right? Well treated. 12 months of this special beauty treatment. And Esther is exposed to that and goes through it. Now bear in mind that all of these women are described as all of them as being beautiful. And they are put under the process. And perhaps they're even more beautiful after the 12-month period. And you'll notice in verse 9 that Esther won the favor of Haggai. The young woman pleased him won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem, which tells you that the harem is not a, it's not a good place to be. A lot of competition, a lot of backbiting, a lot of women together, only women, no men, except Haggai, who's a eunuch. And there they are, confined, and going through this process. And Haggai, he observes Esther, and he provides, number one, her cosmetics, he provides her with food, he provides her with attendance, personal attendance, seven women to help her, and so on. That's the treatment. Number five is the allocation. Every woman, in turn, goes in to spend a night with Ahasuerus. Summoned to the king to spend a night, she can take whatever she wants from the harem with her to please the king. Whatever happened on this night, of course, affected their lives for the rest of their lives. They were changed. They were different. 
Life was never the same for them. So, number six is the actual night itself. You notice verse 14. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem. I thought about that. You get used to one harem, and then you're removed to a new place, a new harem, where the women are all now, those in the same category, we spent a night with Ahasuerus. We may have spent more than one night. It's possible that he called them back, some here and there. But they're all concubines. That's how they're classified. And now they've got a new eunuch, Shaashgaz, to look after them and to care for them. So, this is traumatic stuff, right? The text just passes over it as if it occurs, which it does. But you can imagine human emotion, suffering, grief, trauma, all of those things that take place and so on. So the night, number six, is the opportunity in verse 14 to please the king. The next day is number seven. The next day, verse 14, they go to the other harem and so on. And they may or may not, as I've said, go back to Ahasuerus or not. Now, how could you ever possibly decide which woman, right? Thousands of women, women coming through. How could you keep track? How could Xerxes keep track? He didn't care. He didn't care. He's not interested. Xerxes, I don't think, is looking particularly at this stage for any one particular thing. No, he's not doing that. He's just going through the motions with these women, night after night after night after night, so that we are to look at the passage from the point of view of outside of the text. Not from what Esther may be thinking or other young women may be thinking or what Xerxes is thinking, but what is God doing in these kinds of affairs? Because there's nothing pleasant about this at all. So this is the selection process with all of its beauty treatments, and the outcome of this would be verse 4, look at verse 4, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Well, Xerxes, I'm happy with that. I'm happy. Woman after woman after woman. This entire process is not, is not orthodox methodology in choosing a royal queen. Okay, Nor is this a competition like we have today, right? Beauty competitions, beauty pageants that any woman can enter uh, or apply to enter. No, the criteria, the criteria in Persia is simply this. You had to live in the empire, the 127 provinces. Number two, you had to be a virgin, young woman. And number three, you had to be beautiful. That's the criteria. That's what... Xerxes is looking for in his queen. Not much to commend that, right? Now this, this collection around the, the empire would have been a forcible extraction. So soldiers come and they just observe beautiful young women and they take them from their homes. So a father, a mother, they have no say in the matter. Marriageable young Women are removed from their families, removed from their homes, removed from their plans for the future. That doesn't matter. Taken to Susa. 
this of course is just simply concubine replenishment that we find mentioned here this is what I like about scripture right it gives you the nitty-gritty of human life and this is what we discover in the book of Esther human life is very messy and sinful and wicked and in the midst of the mess there's God and that's the point of the entire book of Esther that that in all of the turmoil of humanity wherever it is in whatever empire whatever country whatever takes place and we live in a privileged country in one sense but there are other countries in the world that are like Persia that are barbaric that have no esteem for women who are forcibly removed at young very young ages to be married off to older men and so on and so on we know that we we understand that the point of Esther is to say that God is there in the human mess in the tragedy that our sin has brought to life that God himself intervenes and does things so if you found yourself in Persia in Esther chapter 2 you would be you would either submit or you would face the consequences of a forced extraction whether you were willing or not to go so the Persian king the Persian Empire doesn't care about parents it doesn't care about their plans for their sons and daughters if you had sons they take them to the army or they make eunuchs of them or if they are daughters they take them to the harem you could never say in Persia like people say today this is my body hands off you could never say that in Persia you belong to the kingdom you belong to the empire you belonged to Xerxes all of his citizens that's Persia so now will you notice that at this point the writer of the book of Esther look at verse 5 <clears throat> he introduces us to Mordecai the Jew in verse 5 and to Esther his cousin it says there was a Jew in the Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai who was a Benjaminite his family, his parents, grandparents and back, been carried away among the captives under Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, and so on. So we're introduced to Mordecai and we're introduced to Esther for the first time in the book of Esther. And you notice that Mordecai is introduced as a Jew who's descended from the captives, from the exiles that went to Babylon in verse 6 under Nebuchadnezzar, under Jehoiakim, who was king until 598 597 BC because from 598 to 586 King Zedekiah was in charge of Judah and then fell ultimately to Nebuchadnezzar but this is the king just before uh, Zedekiah uh, under whom Mordecai's relatives are taken into captivity Esther we discover has no parents they must have died verse 7 so she is in the care of Mordecai who presumably is older than she is because the text tells us he took care of her as if she was his own daughter so he must have been older than her so here's a third generation Persian exile and he and Esther live in Persia and they're comfortable living in Persia notice that he is called Mordecai the Jew Mordecai the Jew why is that because the writer in the book of Esther is positioning Mordecai the Jew against Haman the Agagite 
positioning Mordecai against Haman, which you read about in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the Haman the Agagite, of course, the Agagites should raise, the, I guess, the hairs on the back of your neck because they are the descendants of Agag, king of the Amalekites, whom God said to King Saul, you are to utterly destroy them. 1 Samuel chapter 14 and 15. And Saul failed to kill Agag. It was left to Samuel to destroy Agag. This man, Haman, is a long descendant of the Amalekites, the ancient enemies of Israel. So you can see how the writer is developing his theme of positioning this enmity, hatred for Esther, for Mordecai, because of their nationality. Notice the mention of Kish, right, in verse 5. Mordecai was the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. And of course that brings to mind the father of King Saul, who was Kish. This is not the same Kish, of course, because this is many years later. But the writer is using these techniques to make, help us make connections. And of course, he was a Benjaminite. And Saul, King Saul, was also from the tribe of Benjamin. And this, of course... The, the establishing of Mordecai, his nationality as a Jew, his pedigree, his descendancy, his genealogy as, as a Benjamite, is to position him against Hagar, sorry, Haman, and, of course, all of his descendants, his pedigree, on the other hand. And so look at how we are introduced in verse 7 to Esther. It says, Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. This is her Hebrew name, Hadassah. means a myrtle, myrtle tree. But the book refers to her always as Esther, some 55 times she is referred to as Esther. The name Esther means a star. It's a Persian name. And notice she is described in two ways. Number one, having a beautiful figure. And number two, as lovely to look at. If you have the New American Standard Version, it says she was beautiful of form and face. Beautiful of form and face, or in appearance. By the way, that description is exactly the same description that is given of Rachel when she appeared to Jacob. Remember when he came and she was the shepherdess coming? That's exactly how she appeared to Jacob. Lovely in form and face. That is exactly the same phrase that is used of the son of Rachel, Joseph, who was lovely in form and face. Beautiful man. This man, Joseph. And you read about that in Genesis 29 and Genesis 39. What you do know, notice, is that there's no comment, right, on the character of Esther. We have no idea what kind of girl she was. No, no idea what she thought about. Nothing. She is just described in the context, in keeping with all the other women, as beautiful, lovely to look at, form and face. So it's just her physical appearance that is put on display. All the women's physical appearance is that which qualifies them to be able to be selected and to go into King Ahasuerus. Notice verse 2. All of the women are beautiful. All of them. And physical beauty, of course, does two things for you in Persia. It means you have a door into being socially accepted. And it also opens another door to sexual exploitation. And that's exactly what we read about in Esther chapter 2. And both of these are exactly what interests this king. This is what's on his mind. 
This is what interests Ahasuerus. He cares little, it would appear, for character on the surface. Now, I have no idea, we have no idea what the encounter between Esther and Ahasuerus was like. But perhaps he was struck by something different in Esther. Not just her beauty, because every single woman before her has been absolutely beautiful. And every woman afterwards will be beautiful. But something has struck Xerxes about Esther. She pleased him. She won his favor and so on. Something captured the man's interest and the man's heart. Because remember, Xerxes on the surface is the worldly man. He's a man like Esau. He's a man like Cain. He's worldly, he's secular, he's successful, and he's sinful. He's, a, he's the picture of the world, he's the epitome of the world. He's what you and I once were like. That's the point here, that this man who is so surface level is what I was like, and what you were like before Jesus saved you. So what Mordecai and Esther are going to bring are, is a contrast to everything that Xerxes and Haman stand for. The very antithesis, the very opposite. And what is it that they are going to focus on that separates them from Ahasuerus and Haman? It is their people. It is their people. They stand for their people. They represent their people. They represent a people who are assimilated in a pagan culture, in a pagan world, who have lost themselves in some way, in some form or other, in the midst of being overwhelmed by an empire. They have submitted. Esther eats their food. Doesn't seem to trouble her. It sure troubled Daniel, do you remember, when he was taken into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. When the food was brought before him, he and his three friends said, no way, can't eat that because we're Jewish. But Esther seems completely untroubled by those things because they have assimilated themselves. They have become culturally acceptable in Persia in order to get along in Persia, in order to live. And sometimes Christians do that in the world, don't they? They assimilate with the world to be accepted by the world, to not be thought of as strange and, and far out. And who are these people that don't go along with what we do and say? So what is going to happen in the book of Esther is that everything that is Persian, and it's everywhere, everything that is Persian is going to be reduced and put out of focus so that you and I can focus on Mordecai and Esther and their people, the Jewish people in this context, and they will come to the front. They will be in the limelight. Now how do we account for all of this? Just this simple historical account in Esther chapter 2. There's only one way we account for that. This is the providence of God. And this is scripture, as John Flavel says, meeting together, taking us in a direction. Scripture makes the statement, but providence leads this path and that path and this path and that path. And when they join together at the end, you see that it was the hand of God who did it all, who did it all. But sometimes in the nitty-gritty of it, you don't see God. You don't see God because God is lost, it would appear, in the midst of the culture and so on. And so we notice, for example, how do we account for, for example, in verse 9, that Esther won the favor of Haggai. Look, there's lots of women. How come just Esther? 
How come just Esther won his favor? And verse 15 says she won the favor of everybody else. How come just Esther wins the favor of everybody else? And then verse 17, she wins the favor of the king. Who's doing that? I don't think it's Esther. She's just one among many women. But it's God who's doing it, right? It's God who's superintending. I mean, here is a rise in influence and a rise in power. And it's not Esther's beauty because every woman is beautiful. She can't say it's because she was beautiful in form and face. They were all beautiful in form and face. No, there's something else at work. It's the sovereignty of God. It's the providence of God behind the scenes. Remember that beauty is only skin deep. On the surface, what you see, that's beauty. Beauty is really, real beauty is internal, right? As the New Testament teaches us. It's the gentle, quiet spirit that God approves. It's not the facial features and the form features that appeal to God at all. That's just surface level. So it had to be something else. Maybe it was her demeanor. Maybe it was her character. Maybe it was her conversation. Maybe it was her intelligence. But I have to assume that many Persian young women would have been the same. The same. So she certainly, Esther, appears to have the ability to win favor. Because she wins Haggai's favor, she wins everybody's favor, and she wins the king's favor. Much like Joseph, who won the favor of Potiphar, and then the favor of Pharaoh, much like Daniel, who won the favor of Nebuchadnezzar, and won the favor of Darius, the Mede. Here is Esther winning the favor of a pagan king in an ancient culture. But there is one thing she never says, right? Verse 10, she never reveals her people. She never reveals her nationality, because Mordecai said, don't tell them. And yet what's interesting in the text is that Mordecai is referred to as Mordecai the Jew. And Haman certainly discovers that he's Jewish, and that sets him off. So her nationality is hidden at this stage. Perhaps Mordecai understood that if you reveal your nationality, it might set some pre prejudice against you and work against you. So we don't want that. Don't, don't reveal your people. Maybe it was to protect her people from repercussions that might have come if she had made known that she was Jewish and so on. So Esther receives Persian cosmetics, Esther receives Persian food, and they don't seem to trouble her and all that. In other words, here is a young girl who knows how to survive and who knows how to thrive in a pagan world. That's assimilation. Surviving, thriving. Mordecai is very concerned for her. I mean, look, the Bible says that he stands outside the court every day. So if she's undergoing a treatment for one year, he's out there every day asking, how's Esther? What's happening? How's Esther? What's happening? Every day. I mean, that's a man who's concerned, right? He's concerned for her. Because she has gone, forcibly removed from his loving care, from their home together, into this place that is a harem in Persia where conditions are different, where you have a new place to live for the rest of your life and new people to engage with for the rest of your life, people who have power, and people who win power and people who lose power. 
And all these treatments and all these preparations eventually bring Esther to verse 16, right? Her turn, her time to go to Ahasuerus to spend a night with the king. There's no mention of what she thought about. But certainly, we have an understanding when we read the text of some degree of what to expect. I mean, is Xerxes a monster or a man? Who is he? What's he like? Perhaps some trepidation on Esther's part. But the Holy Spirit has not revealed any of these things to us. It leaves them there under the surface, simmering. And the outcome of that one night in verse 17 is that Esther wins. Wins the favor of Xerxes. And verse 18, there's a celebration. A new queen, right? And notice how generous Xerxes is, right? He grants a remission of taxes to the provinces. That's the whole country. I mean the whole empire. 127 provinces. Now, no more taxes this year. And he gave gifts with royal generosity. So, I ask myself, what can I learn from Esther chapter 2, right? Well, here it is. First of all, you have to consider in the passage what are called divine passives. Divine passives. Now you say, what is a divine passive? Well, a divine passive occurs when the agent of an activity is not explicitly stated but God is implicitly implied in dealing in providence. That's a divine passive. So you read on the surface, no mention of God, explicit mention of God, but under the surface, it can only be God who's doing all of these things. Only God. So for example, look at verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken. It's a divine passive. She's put in the custody of Haggai. So notice, many young women are taken, and then Esther also was taken. The Hebrew word for taken, by the way, does not include brutalization. So it's just a gathering, right? A picking, a choosing. But she is chosen. She is picked out. Esther has no options. Esther has no power. Royal decrees are made and they're carried out. And that's the end of it. But you know and I know when you read the text that it is God who is working in the midst of royal decrees that go out. Made by foolish young men who say let all the beautiful young women be gathered together. That's the providence of God. The folly of man is on the surface, but the power of God is underneath everything in the book of Esther. That's the first thing, divine passives. God active, not explicitly, but you can't miss Him. You can't miss God. Number two, there is, always, there is also the Hebrew way of expressing irresistible series of events irresistible series of events. So look at verse 6. Verse 6 says that Mordecai had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Notice, carried away, carried away, carried away. Three times they're carried away. Exiles who have been carried away from Jerusalem. 
Well, who did that? You'll notice the text says, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. But you know that the agent of the exile is not Nebuchadnezzar, but God. God. Not Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is just the instrument in the hands of God. That's what you read, by the way, at the end of Ezra and the first book of Chronicles with Cyrus the Great, the man, along with Darius the Mede, who overthrow Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5 and the righty handwriting on the wall that night. Cyrus the Great makes a decree that, okay, I think exiles should go back and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. That's God. That's not Cyrus the Great. He's an instrument. As the prophet Isaiah says, he's my shepherd. He's my servant. I've raised him up to do that. You see, even evil kings are in the hands of God. When you think about Joseph and Pharaoh, think about Pharaoh. Unlimited power over the entire kingdom of Egypt. And suddenly he hears about this man who can interpret dreams. Well, bring him. He comes out from the pit, out of the prison, and they shave him and clean him and put Joseph in front of Pharaoh there. And Pharaoh says, I've heard you can interpret dreams. Not I, Joseph says. Quite right, isn't he? It's not me. It's God. It's God who will show Pharaoh. And then, well, tell me the dreams. So he tells them the dreams. And just like that, he gives the interpretation. It's not like Joseph says, now, you know, that's quite a difficult one. I need to spend some time thinking about it. No, he just comes out with the interpretation. He just gives it. And this Pharaoh, who has wise men, many wise men, when Joseph comes up with the plan, he says, well, what other man is like this man who knows exactly what is required? In an instant, from degradation and the pit, to the highest place in the kingdom. Who did it? God. God. Right? It's everywhere in the Bible. Everywhere in the Bible. So Nebuchadnezzar is just an instrument to carry away captives. But it's really God who sent them into captivity. God's the agent. Going into captivity, you don't have a choice. But God sent them into captivity. Because God has purposes. God has reasons. Now you know the silence of God in the book of Esther doesn't mean God is helpless. Do any of us believe that God is helpless? If God is helpless, He's not God. No, God is the only one who's not helpless. Everybody else is helpless. How can Esther, how can Mordecai, two individuals, overcome, overthrow the enemy of the Jewish people, Haman? It's God. It's God. They don't have much power. Haman has power. The kingdom has power. Persia has power. Ahasuerus has power. But God is more powerful. Isn't that great? God is more powerful. You live in a world and I live in a world that is filled with power. Power of man. The power of sin. We live in the city of man. Here we are. It surrounds us everywhere. But God rules in the city of man. God rules. Oh yeah, decisions are made in the capital up the road. And they just go out with a flurry of a pen. Let me remind you that every stroke of that pen is under the hand of God. Every single stroke. And so often we complain about the strokes of the pen from up the road. But God knows exactly what's happening. Every time. Sometimes He will take us through deep waters. 
where life becomes hard. Life becomes tough and rough. And sometimes life will be better and easier. It's God. It's everywhere God. So when you're tempted to complain about your little lot in life and my little lot in life, my trials, my troubles, just remember that in your trials and troubles, it is God. God is there. God is as near as you can imagine. He's even closer than the trial. Closer than the tribulation. Closer than the suffering. Why is that? Because God is God. God is sovereign. There is no king, Xerxes, Darius, Cyrus, Nebuchadnezzar. Where are they? Perished. Where is God? Here he is tonight. Still the same God. Still our God. Still the God of his people. Still unchanged. The same God. So the story of Esther is the story of humanity. It's a, and it's the story of the display of deity. God. God on display. So Esther conveys a God-impelled hope. That God is near me and God is always working for me. Have you ever considered Galatians chapter 4 verse 4? When the time was right, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. To be born of a woman, to be born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Have you ever thought about when the time was right, God sent Jesus? That's the sovereign power of God. That's the providence of God. That's the omniscience of God. That's God controlling even the events surrounding the birth of His Son, who is born into an empire that rules the world, Rome under an emperor Augustus, whose very name is taken to mean divine. And yet it's only God who's divine. And the Son who came was divine. This is God. This is God. One thing you learn about Esther is that lives are not perfect. Lives are in trouble. Lives are messy. They're sinful. But God is right there in the midst of sinfulness working. You're not sinless. And I'm not sinless. There's only one who is sinless. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And, but it, God who comes to us in our sinfulness, even when we're inclined to rebel against Him, He's there. He's there. He's not absent. And this is Esther. This is why God calls you and me tonight. Number one, to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. This is, this is why God calls you and me to trust Him in the midst of all of life, all of the troubles of life, all of the messes that I make and you make of your life. God working in us. God bringing us to the likeness of His Son. God doing it sovereignly. All Look at all of us here tonight. All of us have so many different events in our life, right? And all of us here tonight are listening to this word. Here it is. And God's providences and scripture are going to meet together for your life, for my life. And when we look back, as we can do so often in our lives, on the providential dealing of God, first of all in saving us, and all the backgrounds that we had, and how He brought us to salvation, and how He has kept us from that moment to this moment. 
and how we believe he shall keep us from tonight to glory. All because he's sovereign and he's ruling my life and your life. And if I think about God like that, then why would I be hesitant to just submit myself to him? Thank you, Lord, that you're in sovereign control of every part of my life. My job, my work, my family, my home, my marriage, everything. You're in control. I give it all to you. I submit myself to you. My circumstances of life, whatever they are, thank you for them. Because you're providential. You're gracious. You're near. It's like Job said in Job 9, right? Replying to Bildad the Shuhite. Sometimes he passes me by and I see him not. Or like David as he contemplates in Psalm 139, you stop me when I'm going forward and when I want to retreat or go back, I bump into you. And if I want to take a sideways move to the left or the right, you're there, God. You hedge me in behind and before. You see, God is protecting. God is providentially leading, caring, for all of us. That's what's under and in the book of Esther. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these glorious truths that you reveal in your word, sometimes in very pagan situations, very sinful situations, you reveal that you're sovereign. You never hide from us, Father, in your word, the sinfulness of your people. Because that's exactly what you have, you found us in our sin, and you saved us from our sins by your grace. How we thank you that Jesus came into this world to save us, to give us life. And so now we thank you that as we face tomorrow, go out into the world to serve you. May we work with, with your eye upon us and for your glory. Let us not work as pleasing men but as pleasing God, because we are servants, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, and not of men. And so, Father, help us to learn the lessons from an ancient world and from your word, that we might comprehend the ways of Scripture and the ways of providence as being together, coming to the same end, because you have determined all things, the beginning from the end. Thank you for your sovereignty over all of our lives, all of our troubles, all of our sufferings, all of our trials, all of the messes of life. Help us to learn from them, to trust you more, and to submit to you more, and to put on holiness and to put on godliness and to be a righteous people in this world in which we live. Let us not love the world, but keep us from the world. Deliver us, we pray. So now we commend ourselves to you. Go before us in this week that lies ahead. Thank you for this Lord's Day you've given to us. And we thank you for our time together tonight. Take us to our homes in safety, we pray. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 May the Lord bless you. And